0: Welcome to Module 9 of Administrative Law. I'm Craig Forsees. In the last module, we completed our discussion of the seven steps to administrative law wisdom by drilling down and focusing specifically on the four-step approach to the control of administrative action, focusing on judicial review at the federal court level and looking specifically at the Federal Courts Act and some of its operations. For the balance of these modules, we will focus on other subsets of the seven questions. In your practical exercises in this course, you'll run through exercises implicating the first two questions of the three-question approach to the exercise of delegated power. Specifically, first, who is the delegate? And there, recall, you look to the statute and you identify the delegates and you make sure there hasn't been an improper subdelegation of power. And second, what is the nature of the power delegated? Is it a more purely administrative power that gives the delegate little choice? For example, the delegate must issue the license if certain conditions are met. Or is it a more discretionary decision that gives the delegate a lot of choice? And how broad is this discretion? Is it fettered by conditions or is it more unfettered? Those practical exercises depend on specific statutes, our case simulations for this course. And our practical exercises also focus on the third question, of the three-question approach to the exercise of delegated power. How is the power to be exercised? Because procedural and substantive standards that condition the exercise of power may also be set out in the act or related regulations. But as we have repeatedly seen even now at this point in our course, procedural standards on the exercise of power also stem from other sources, The Constitution, specifically Section 7 of the Charter of Rights and Freedoms, and also procedural and substantive standards flow from the common law. Now these standards, common law and constitutional, are more generic and universal than what is found in each individual idiosyncratic statute that delegates power to a delegate. So we can address these more universal standards in a less idiosyncratic way in these lecture modules as well as through our practical exercises in the way i approach this topic the topic of common law and constitutional standards and specifically common law and constitutional standards to begin with that govern procedure we'll begin with a brief history of natural justice and procedural fairness at common law i'll then divide our conversation into two components the first i'll call triggers when is the procedural entitlement at common law triggered Likewise, when is Section 7 of the Charter triggered? And likewise, when are the procedural entitlements in the Bill of Rights triggered? And remember, the Bill of Rights is available only at the federal level. Then I'll turn to the second component of this discussion. If one of these procedural entitlements is triggered, what do you get? That is, what is the procedural entitlement itself? Here, there are relatively few distinctions to be drawn between the common law, the Charter, and the Bill of Rights, so we shall deal with the content of procedural entitlements in one fell swoop together. Okay, so let's turn first origins of procedural obligations, and specifically procedural obligations at common law. And the starting point to this conversation is really a cliche. And the cliche says that a tribunal, that is an administrative decision maker, is master of its own procedure. Now, I want to emphasize, this is not intended to suggest that tribunals or administrative decision makers operate in a vacuum and can simply do what they want. As we'll see, courts will accord a measure of deference to tribunals who are figuring out how best to fulfill their statutory tasks but this deference should not be overstated. And so I prefer to rephrase this cliche. Look to the statute in the regs, and if those instruments say nothing about the procedural requirements a delegate must meet, then the delegate is a master of its own procedure, but only subject to other requirements that might exist at the common law, in the constitution, and in other statutes. That doesn't quite have the same ring, but it's probably more accurate than simply saying the tribunal is a master of its own procedure. Because in truth, the tribunal may be a master of its own procedure, but it's on a tight leash. So let's focus then on the common law procedural standards and where they come from. By developing common law procedural standards, the courts have devised a kind of code of fair administrative procedure. Just as the courts at common law were willing to control some of the substantive standards applied by delegates, think the abuse of discretion in Roncarelli versus Duplessis, there the court was not prepared to imagine that Mr. Duplessis could wield power under statute for any purpose he wished, so too in the common law have principles of natural justice and procedural fairness been imposed on delegates to ensure that when they exercise power, they exercise power in a procedurally fair manner. Now, this sounds incredibly dull, and maybe it is. Procedure does not resonate with most people in terms of an area of fascination and preoccupation, but it is not a matter of secondary importance. With the expansion of governmental powers, it is only by procedural fairness that the exercise of powers is often kept in check. Mr. Justice Jackson, a judge of the United States Supreme Court, once said that procedural fairness and regularity are the indispensable essence of liberty. Severe substantive laws can be endured if they are fairly and impartially applied. And the reverse is also true. You could have substantively fair laws, but if they're procedurally improperly applied, then you're going to have injustice. Still, there's a clear tension between fairness, as guaranteed by the courts, on the one hand, and administrative efficiency, on the other hand. It is true that these rules of natural justice and procedural fairness restrict the freedom of administrative action, and their observance costs a certain amount of time and money. But time and money are well spent if they reduce friction in the machinery of government. So long as the courts do not let these principles of fairness run amok, so long as they are at least sensitive to the needs of good administration, these rules are protection for both citizens and government. After all, a decision that's made without bias and with proper consideration of the views of persons affected by it will not only be more acceptable, it's probably also going to be of better quality. And as we shall see, with the development of the rules of natural justice and procedural fairness, the expectation is that justice and efficiency go hand in hand, so long as the law does not impose excessive refinements. So let's shift then and look at the common law history of procedural protections. It's a long and often less than glorious one. But as you've likely guessed by this point, I think that... Nine-tenths of understanding something really involves understanding where it comes from because it's the product of this history, not the product of logic per se. So let me give you the 5,000-foot overview of the history of procedural protections in administrative law. And don't worry too much about the details I'm giving to you in this module. You just need to understand that big picture, the origin story, if you will, of procedural fairness and its evolution. And next module, will turn to the actual application. And so common law procedural protections emerged well over hundred years ago, flourished, dissipated, and then rebounded in Canada in the 1970s. And in fact, a vision of procedural fairness emerged in English law as early as 1723 in a case known as Dr. Bentley's case. Here, Dr. Bentley, a notorious renegade academic at Cambridge, challenged the summary revocation of his degrees by the university and in the course of hearing the case, Justice Fortescue observed that not even God had failed to provide Adam and Eve with a hearing before casting them out of Eden. Cambridge surely could do no less for Mr. Bentley. Bentley's case exemplifies the extent to which original conceptions of this concept of natural justice flowed in part from conceptions of morality and natural law. At its most profound and philosophical, natural justice is really the natural sense of what's right and wrong. It's some higher body of principles to which all law must conform. At its more profound, natural justice is really an expression of that branch of legal philosophy known as natural law. On the other hand, at the more mundane level, and that's the level at which we live in this course, the level that concerns us, natural justice is really a series of standards and principles that must be followed in the application of rules. These are procedural guarantees, very much like what is known as due process in the American tradition and to a lesser extent in our own. Natural justice is also a flexible concept. It involves the basic concepts of justice that may in any particular day and age offend the sensibilities of judges. But whatever the flexibilities over time in terms of content, natural justice connotes two broad classes of principles, known as audi alteram the right to be heard, and nemo judex, the right to an impartial decision-maker. And these are concepts we will flesh out in coming weeks. So this principle of natural justice lay at the heart of the concept of judicial fairness and courtroom fair play. It was a concept for judges. But the real emergence of natural justice in the context of administrative law occurred in the 18th and 19th century with the growth of the administrative apparatus of the state. These administrative bodies and agencies often replaced and expanded upon the work that had been done earlier in English history by justices of the peace. And justices of the peace were clearly judicial officers, and as such, they were expected to conduct themselves according to the procedural standards expected of courts. And in particular, they were obliged to apply these procedural standards falling under the rubric of natural justice. Now, as justices of the peace were supplanted by these new administrative bodies, the common law courts approached these agencies with many of the same expectations they had concerning the justices of the peace, and in particular, they expected adherence to the principles of natural justice. The high point in this application of natural justice to administrative decision makers came in a case called Cooper v. Board of Works, and Cooper involved a 19th century statute that specified no one might put up a building in London without giving several days notice to the local board of works and if anyone did put up the building without this notice the board might have the building demolished. Now despite this law a builder began to construct a house in London without having given the required notice and what happens? Well when the fellow's house reached the second story the board of works sent several people out late in the evening and they demolished the house. In other words The board did exactly what the act said it could do in exactly the circumstances in which the act said they might do it. Despite this, the builder brought a successful action on the basis that the board had no power to act without first asking him what he had to say for himself. In other words, a procedural requirement. In finding for the building, the court made several cogent observations. For example, one judge, Earl, concluded that the board ought to have given notice to the plaintiff and allowed him to be heard because the failure to send notice of the building project to the board might be the sort of omission that could be explained by any number of reasonable explanations. Maybe Cooper had conformed with the law. Maybe he had posted the notice, but the post office had lost the notice. There would really be no harm if the board had given poor Mr. Cooper an opportunity to explain his failure to give notice. On the other hand, there might be many advantages in terms of efficiency, justice, and fulfilling the purpose of the statute by requiring the board to first hear from Mr. Cooper before knocking down buildings. Justice Biles, for his part, concurring, has one of my favorite passages in all of administrative law. A long course of decisions, beginning with Dr. Bentley's case and ending with some very recent cases, established that although there are no positive words in the statute requiring that the party shall be heard, Yet the justice of the common law will supply the omission of the legislature. The justice of the common law, in other words, will fill the gaps that those absent-minded legislators in parliament didn't get around to spelling out when they enacted this statute. Now, in statements throughout the case, the court spelled out how it felt that it was entitled to impose these procedural obligations tied to this concept of natural justice. They concluded that the great majority of administrative acts were really judicial, despite the fact that these administrative acts bore very little resemblance to the sorts of activities one would usually consider judicial. So instead of coming clean and simply saying that natural justice was a principle that applied to both judicial and more administrative acts, the court simply stretched the definition of judicial in rather unnatural ways. And so in the Cooper years, every administrative act, every exercise of delegated power was treated as judicial if it adversely affected any person's rights. And if things had remained thus, we would have a somewhat ridiculous definition of judicial, but otherwise a fairly commonsensical doctrine of due process entitlements in administrative law. But unfortunately for many citizens and for us, And for the simplicity of administrative law, the views of the Cooper case were forgotten. In fact, the courts essentially abandoned the paradoxical broad meaning they had given to the word judicial, and no doubt driven by the expansion of administrative decision-making, they concluded that really the world had to be divided into those tasks that were conducted on a judicial or at least a quasi-judicial basis, and those that were more administrative. And so, as a consequence, the courts in the United Kingdom took a step back and began classifying delegated decision-making powers. They said that some of the powers were judicial and some were quasi-judicial, and those that were judicial or quasi-judicial had to meet natural justice standards, and then there were things that were more bureaucratic, more administrative, and there they said that there was no due process, fairness, or natural justice expectation. And so as soon as you start partitioning the world into a spectrum or a tripartite scheme, well, you need tests to decide into which category a given decision maker fell. And a lot of the jurisprudence in the interwar period between the First and Second World War in the United Kingdom was about pigeonholing and classification of delegated powers to decide which delegates need employ natural justice and which need not. This approach was adopted in Canada by 1959 in a Supreme Court of Canada case called Coppathorn. And by adopting the narrow English jurisprudence of the interwar years, the Supreme Court deeply curtailed the development of due process procedural standards at common law for administrative law purposes. And again, it sparked this heavy emphasis on categorization and a flurry of terminological baggage and confusion, judicial, quasi-judicial, administrative Which category does a decision-maker lie in? And so a few decades ago, if you were taking this course on practicing administrative law, in order to determine if the common law insisted on certain procedural protections above and beyond those in the statute or regulations, you'd have to go through this complicated process of dividing delegates into these three camps. Well, fortunately, things have evolved, and that evolution really began in the United Kingdom itself. And so ironically, while Canadian courts were picking up on the conservative jurisprudence from the interwar period, the United Kingdom courts, after the Second World War, were moving away from it. And so in cases like the 1964 House of Lords decision, Ridge versus Baldwin, the United Kingdom courts attacked the problem at its roots by arguing that the term judicial had been misinterpreted and that, in fact... The mere exercise of delegated power was enough to render a decision judicial and thus subject to natural justice. And so a reversion to the Cooper versus Board of Works approach. And so that meant that a power that affected rights had to be exercised in a manner that complied with natural justice. And in fact, thereafter, the courts in the United Kingdom moved away from this ancient terminology of judicial and simply move towards talking about delegated decision makers whose conduct affected the interests, rights or privileges of individuals or parties having an obligation to act fairly and what do they mean by this well fairness was simply a term used to describe natural justice in those circumstances where the delegate was administrative and not judicial or quasi-judicial under the old classic tripartite scheme and so with time The term fairness became a shortcut for just describing the procedural entitlements that are obligatory at common law in administrative law. So, what happens in Canada then? Well, the turning point in Canada came in 1979 with a Supreme Court case called Nicholson versus Haldeman Norfolk Police. There, the majority of the Supreme Court clearly disapproved of the silly classification game, judicial quasi-judicial, administrative, they abandoned this distinction and simply concluded that a measure of procedural due process had to apply regardless of the sort of delegate we're dealing with. This position was reaffirmed by the Supreme Court very soon after in a case called Martineau versus Matskew Institution in 1980. And once again, the application of this duty of procedural entitlement did not depend on proof of a judicial or quasi-judicial function. And more than that, Justice Dixon suggested there was no strict distinction to be made between the old nomenclature of natural justice and fairness. It is wrong, he said, to regard natural justice and fairness as distinct and separate standards and to seek to define the procedural content of each. And so for our purposes going forward, I'm just going to use the term procedural fairness. Natural justice is simply an antiquated expression describing the same thing. That nail is driven even deeper in a subsequent case called Cardinal. Cardinal goes one step further than the earlier cases by suggesting when this duty to be fair will be triggered. Earlier cases hadn't provided any as to the trigger or the circumstances in which procedural fairness was owed. In Cardinal, the Supreme Court gives us a hint. It says, a decision of a delegate that affects the rights, privileges, or interests of an individual will in fact trigger procedural fairness but there's a caveat. The duty would not apply to an administrative decision which is of a legislative nature. Well, that poses dilemmas. We've just abandoned the silly classification game between judicial, quasi-judicial, and administrative. Now the court's told us that procedural fairness applies to every decision by a delegate that affects the rights, privileges, or interests of an individual, but they've suggested a carve-out for something called a legislative decision. And we have no understanding in the jurisprudence to this point as to what constitutes a legislative decision. And so we'll have to explore that distinction, which has become relatively important in a future module. And so let's review. What we have in Canada is a court prepared to supply the omission of the legislature. It's prepared to find common law, due process standards, even where the legislature hasn't prescribed them. And we also have a sense that there's a trigger, a decision of a delegate that affects the rights, privileges, or interests of an individual. Subject to this caveat that the duty does not apply to an administrative decision that is of a legislative nature. Now, what we have to do next is worry more concretely about this trigger. What does it really mean to say that procedural fairness is owed when a delegate affects the rights, privileges, or interests of an individual? And what is this concept of a decision of a legislative nature? We'll come back to that in the next module. But in the meantime, this ends module number nine.